This episode is brought to you by Great Minds, publishers of Wit and Wisdom. Wit and Wisdom has transformed English language arts classrooms across the nation. With knowledge-rich lessons written by former teachers and relentlessly curated selections of art and books that build knowledge, Wit and Wisdom cultivates connected knowledge of a subject from an integrated and layered approach. Along the way, students are empowered with original thought and a questioning spirit. To learn more about Wit and Wisdom, visit greatminds.org backslash English. Hi, I'm Laura Stewart with the Reading League. Welcome to Teaching, Reading, and Learning, the TRL podcast. The focus of this podcast is to elevate important conversations in the educational community in order to inspire, inform, and celebrate contributions to teaching and learning. And today you are in for a treat. I have with me uh, the founding mothers, if you will, of the Reading League, Drs. Maria Murray and Doreen Cook. And today you'll learn about their accidental origins into education and the founding uh, of the Reading League, as well as future aspirations for the organization. So enjoy. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast my colleagues, Dr. Maria Murray and Dr. Joreen Cook, two of the founding members of the Reading League. Um, and many people have asked to know more about both the origin and the future directions of the Reading League, and there are no better people to fill us in. However, before we get started with our, what I'm sure will be a lively conversation, I'd like to share a little bit more about Maria and Jareen. So prior to founding the Reading League, Dr. Maria Murray was an associate professor at the State University of New York at Oswego, where she taught courses related to literacy assessment and intervention. She received her PhD in reading education from Syracuse University, where she served as project coordinator for Dr. Benita Blackman's numerous federally funded early reading intervention grants. Maria is passionate regarding the prevention and remediation of reading difficulties, I'll say, and consistently strives to increase educator knowledge and the connections between research and practice. On a personal note, Maria is happily married to Danny and has two children, Katie and Mark, and is also mom to her dogs, Lady and Takani, both of whom I've met and their lovely dogs. Dr. Joreen Cook is an early literacy coach in the Syracuse City School District and part-time instructor at Utica College. She has worked in the public school system for 23 years, her earlier years working as an elementary school teacher. She is also a national letters trainer. Her doctoral research investigated how schools and school systems in central New York support students with dyslexia and their families. Her interest in advocacy, systems thinking, and policy work led to her to become a partner in policymaking in 2015. Joreen is president of the board of the Reading League. On a personal note, Dr. Cook is happily married to, as she refers to him, her best friend, Brian, and they have two teens, Evan, who is 16, and Brody, who is 14. So welcome, ladies, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. So excited. It's great to see you. So, um, so I thought we would start with some origins, and I'd like to just have each of you talk about your own personal origins. What made you decide to get into education? Um, maybe some early influences around that decision, or some early influences around your work. 
And I know these are personal stories for you that people really would love for you to share. So either one of you go ahead and get started. Go for it, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll pick. Maria, go ahead. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> thanks, Laura. And thanks, Jareen. Um, my story in education um, was an accidental entry. I wanted to be an attorney at first. And um, I think my freshman year, I made the decision, taking all that history and political science to want to teach others the same thing. That's the abbreviated version. And so I ended up becoming um, a secondary social studies graduate and, and started to tutor uh, before I taught. Um, and I could not understand why the students that I taught social studies to could not read and answer the questions I had assigned. So this was my first experience hearing from parents that, that their children had a reading difficulty, a reading disability, and the word dyslexia. They had never entered my realm before, and, and I was not taught anything about those in my teacher prep. Uh, so, um, I needed to get my master's and I called Syracuse University. I was already married to Danny. Um, and, and I, I called and literally, you know, I'll play act it for you. Hi, um, do you have anything, um, uh, learning disabilities for a master's degree? <laughs> I didn't even know what I was requesting. So this is the innocence of my, be my beginning. But I landed in a really great spot with Dr. Benita Blackman, who I just got off the phone with. We had a nice chat this afternoon. Um, it, she centers me still. Um, so she, she was my advisor, my mentor, uh, my teacher. For 18 years, I stayed at SU. Um, some of those years were full-time work, uh, organizing and coordinating um, her huge studies. So it ended up that I had lots of teachers there, just. Also, the, I guess the best teachers I might have had there were the teachers I worked with. Because a lot of those studies, we scaled up the research to say, what's it look in a real classroom? Is, is it doable in real life, in real classrooms? And it was. Um, so I think a lot of that prepared me for my current role because I got to learn how to work with the politics of school systems and and uh, learn how powerful and brilliant teachers are and they can make the research their own. All sounds happy, doesn't it? All sounds wonderful? Uh-uh. <laughs> because, and I tell the story a lot, sorry if people have heard it before, but when you end up um, leaving those schools after the studies are done and you have your bags and you're done after one or two or three years, guess what happens after a couple of <laughs> that research doesn't stay. So I think Joreen could speak a lot to these systems. Like there was, we worked just with individual teachers and individual schools, but the schools are part of a huge system. And the research never addresses the system. So I would say to Benita, pulling my hair out, like, what do we do to get this to stay? Why don't they get all their kids were reading on grade level? And why is so that was the beginning of my frustration. Um, Follow that with 10 years as a professor at SUNY Oswego, um, a school I'm proud of and glad I interacted with, and I still have a lot of friend colleagues there. But you teach your students the great stuff, 
but it's a little 15 week window that you have to fill their brains that aren't probably really ready for that information. And then they carry that brain, their new teaching brain into a school that's another system that is not ripe for what I taught them. So I, there was a mismatch between my science of reading teaching and the balanced literacy environment that hired them. More frustration. So that's kind of my quick yeah. You know, it's interesting, Maria, um, how many people I've talked to so far that um, so many other guests that didn't start out in education, but followed a thread, right? Something was there that, that just kind of was a curiosity and they followed that thread and it led them into, into the profession. So, yeah. Uh, Doreen, how about you? Well, um, like Maria, I wasn't so sure I wanted to become a teacher. I remembered um, not really knowing what I wanted to do when I was younger and having to choose a career. So I thought banking must be the category for me. I like money. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, but I, I stayed for maybe a semester and then I thought this is just not for me. And what had happened was there were two professors that I had at um, my first year. I had a sociology professor and an uh, anthropology professor. And they just came to life when they talked about their content. And this was really the first time in my young adulthood, um, childhood, that I had ever had an educator that was just so into what they were talking about. And I wanted to become a sociologist. I, sociology was one of my majors. As a result of this person just being on fire and excited about people and making connections and all of that. So that really kind of turned a corner for me because I thought, well, obviously, I don't like sitting in my accounting classes and in my, my micro and macroeconomic classes. I don't feel the same. And I don't come to life. So I did start exploring you know, early childhood and education, and then it just sort of took off. But like yeah. Maria said, I remembered being that student that, you know, you don't know what's in front of you, and it's hard to hold on to making this information stick. And now, as an adjunct professor with undergraduate students, I think about that all the time. And, you know, how do I make them at least feel something when they leave me and that it would stick with them so that when they're faced with students that they don't know, you know, or have feel comfortable with helping, that there are some ways to get around it and that they have some knowledge. And, um, but I didn't learn that for a while. So I got an education degree and then has, well, then boyfriend, now husband, also had an education degree. And we thought, well, you know, we don't know what we want to do. And that wasn't too exciting for our parents to realize they just spent how much money on an education. And anyway, we went back into education and we both became teachers and actually I started teaching in the South. And where I was in the South, balanced literacy was huge. And um, we had these coaches that helped us learn these strategies and these techniques. And I was surrounded by, you know, I would get books on more and more of this information. And you know, and it reminds me of a study, um, uh, like a networking and connecting, where it's not just who you know, it's who you know and what they know that defines what you know, right? So that's right. So if you're constantly reading about these authors, this other world that Maria was a part of at the same time was couldn't be light years away for me. 
And yet, as a teacher, I still had those students. I didn't have children of my own. And I worked all of the artistic magic that I thought I had. And lo and behold, I just couldn't figure out why, you know, I'm finding something they love. Why isn't it? So it didn't connect and it didn't fit right. So much so that, you know, even though I became an instructional coach and it's kind of embarrassing, I'm an instructional coach, you know, flash forward years later, and I'm helping teach teachers. And my knowledge is this. And I'm kind of saying, well, try, I even know that I, something's just not working and connecting, right? So then, you know, once I had children, well, my eldest, Evan, and then I poured everything I thought I knew into Evan. We read together, we did all these activities. I tried to find every topic that he was interested in and get a book on it. Um, anything to, you know, flavor the water so that hopefully he would drink from it. And uh, well, he, he wasn't interested. And, you know, their signs were there, but I didn't really know what I was looking for. But you have that gut feeling that, you should, yeah, something was off. And so when he was in kindergarten, I mean, in hindsight is 2020, right? So in kindergarten, um, I remembered there was a time when Evan couldn't get his morning work done, right? So now I know this teacher and I'm thinking, well, she, she attends anything that I do, so must be great. And again, this is my knowledge that I've got, so that's awesome. And he couldn't get his work done. Why? Because he had to write, he had to sort sounds and letters and it all encompassed something he really struggled to do. So instead of interjecting and addressing and differentiating and pinpointing the problem, it was presented to me as having an effort issue and um, attention issue. And so the resolution was to sit and make him work on it until he got it done. So that work would be over an hour every morning. And it hurts my heart to know. You know fast forward, he's dyslexic, right? So there are some signs along the way. And it wasn't until I really started doing my own investigating. You know, by the time Evan's in first grade, I've been teaching for however many years, still realizing I don't know what I don't know. I see the same problems in my own district. I'm now at a working at a district level, so I was able to start pouring myself into research because I was in a doctoral program. So there is this huge pathway to knowledge that was just sitting there that I have never heard of. And so now you're wrestling with this guilt of, all right, awesome. Not only are you this instructional coach that should know better and you didn't really know what you didn't know. All right. I'm also a parent that feels she should know everything because that's how we feel as parents. And I've failed that too. So it was a big upheaval, but what a godsend it was that I finally kind of broke through and had access to this knowledge um, because that's really shifted everything I do today. I mean, it's all a result of this work when Evan was just five, he's now 16, um, has completely turned me into a completely different di direction. So. I don't no, know. It, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Um, you know, it's really interesting how many of us, we kind of, we kind of have a moment, right? We have a moment. And then from that, we set out to solve a problem. And it feels right. like that's what both of you were trying to do. You know, you had this realization, you come up short, and then you set out to solve a problem. And, um, 
And it yeah. sounds like Maria too, like it was, it was isolating, mm -hmm. right? Like it's sort of like you had this, your own journey and I felt the same. I mean, and I think that that's something, no, I don't think it is something that people will tell us is that they felt that they were on their own island as they're trying to solve this problem. Right. right? And I think, and so that, that just kind of leads me into the next, you know, part of our time together, which is talking about the origins of the reading league. Because when I think about, you know, trying to solve a problem, uh, building community, and so that you're not an island, you know, on your own singular journey. So if one of you could just um, share the story of how the reading league came to be, and, um, you know, don't forget the llama. Can I just share how I met Maria? to kind of give context to that so whoever wants to share please. i'll start it out and then okay. it'll i'll sounds pass good. the baton to that sounds great so now flash forward back to my story flash forward to evan being a fourth grader and i had him evaluated out of my district because having him evaluated in district was a challenge and that's a similar struggle that i have, think a lot of our colleagues have gone through our parents colleagues especially so I was actually at a training for a curriculum called Super Kids. And um, I finally felt connected because the research that the folks from Super Kids were pulling from was the research that I had been building my own background knowledge on my own and making sense of all of this and wrapping my head around like how the science of reading really informs how the brain works and how the brain processes language and you know, all of these things and where the breakdown can occur, all of this. So finally, I'm sitting around people that are presenting this information. And I had the courage to go up to Alicia Sparks, who was the presenter. And I said, you know, I, my son is dyslexic. And I couldn't, like, this was the first time I've really talked to somebody that might know something in all this time. And so she quickly rattled off everything like take notes, like ID, all of these organizations that I've never even heard of, right? So I'm capturing all of this. Now in Super Kids, part of the whole um, process with that was to have this coaching component to build teacher knowledge. So the local coach in the area, her name was Bonnie. And Bonnie is like, I, you need to get in touch with Maria Murray because she's going to be able to help you. I'm like, well, I know I know this name. How do I know this name? And she's like, well, you know, the Shaywitz. Yale, yeah. Benita Blackman stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had read that. I mean, all of these connections were, were coming together. So she gave me Maria's cell phone number and I went home that day and I called Maria and she answered. And I think we talked for maybe two hours. Now I'm blown away that she's a professor and she's cited in research and she's spending the time to just talk to me as if I'm not a moron, um, that I, you know, have a brain and that my problems are real and she's seen these things before and then I'm not crazy for thinking about all this. So Maria actually became Evan's tutor. Now the really cool thing about this was we literally live maybe seven miles down one road apart. That's it. So it was what it literally like what a small, small world. And you know, if you don't speak up sometimes or take those risks, you just never know. Like where would I be today? Where would Evan be today? had we not run into Maria. You know, I think about that often. And I'm sure a lot of the folks that Maria has really worked with think the same because she's, you know, in my transition to, you know, frustration to advocacy and it's that whole um, journey of mourning and, you know, all of these process, like a grief process when you go through these emotions. Like she was there to bear witness to it all and help me, you know, just be another 
person that I can kind of bounce ideas from, um, and it helped kind of cultivate my doctoral study and change the life course of everything that I do. So thank you. I love it. I love it. That's a, such a great story. It is such a great story. So, so Maria, take us from there. I know, right? Ooh. So Maria, take us from there um, and, you know, kind of go back to your frustration and then how that kind of led you into the formation of Reading League. Well, I didn't even mention things like tutoring kids. And I'm a little emotional right now. It's game changing. It is. And um, this is, it's, it's all very, it's very emotional because we're dealing with children's lives and epic journeys. You know? I knew the, the family, parents, yeah. The parents always cried. And um, I knew there's a little counter I worked at and um, they would come through this door that's giving a glare on, my, on this. <laughs> and um, it's just hard to know that it was all un un unnecessary that what they were going through. Absolutely. And I knew that. They didn't need me. They needed someone before me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but thank God they had you. Thank God. Oh, my gosh. I would just go and I would just sit in the back and I would just be in awe of the fact that here's my son who struggles to do this work. He would give me, a, I mean, I'm mom, so it's hard to, and, he gets, and it's, it's hard. He wouldn't really, he likes to talk like his mom. So he, he would sort of go off on a tangent and talk about something and Maria would give him the space and then bring him back into it. And I remembered seeing him, and I say this to teachers often because often these are kids that, you know, will do anything to avoid something that's this hard and insulting to their ego, right? So I remembered I would see, don't you, like Evan would be, so he was this little person and he would crouch in Maria's chair and like hold his head. He's like, it just helps me focus on this work and da, 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 da. He would say nothing as to what he needed to do to contort his body so that he could focus. Yeah. That's so powerful because... I, when I see colleagues that'll be like, sit up straight and da, 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 da. I'm like, these kids are doing everything they can. So if they need to do something like this to let them do it, because that's just like, Evan would literally hold his head so that he could like attend to what he's doing. You and he would do the difficult work. So I, you know, I appreciate, and like Maria, not only did you bring the knowledge base, that's important, but the human aspect and you know the building of self and repairing of these kids that really were broken that's a huge gift that you have and it's natural to you yeah i don't well, know if you see that you know. yeah and, and don't you think this is this that story is just so heart-wrenching and it, it's it's so much of what drives our work right it is right you know all of it i'm gonna go back a little farther because as much as I'd love to talk about Evan, I love him. He's like my boy. Um, uh, one of the things I did was after one after that um, Bonita Blackman and intervention that was in collaboration with what Shaywitz did with brain research, all this cutting edge '90s stuff. Congress spent wrote a big check for that stuff, lots of zeros on it, and um, they don't actually ever read the resulting research. The the congressional people but they do want to see where it goes. So we get a call that the government is sending a producer to Syracuse to meet the families of the children that we 
tutored. I knew, I still know those families and, and talked to some of them. Um, so I got a summer job as a production assistant <laughs> one year and he, he came to Syracuse and he was supposed to go to Houston, I believe, and also to Connecticut to Yale because they were also doing research. But he decided he was so impressed with the outcomes and the, the change in these second and third graders that had never been able to read a word and now they were reading on grade level, but it was more than their reading, which it was, well, that was, if that's all enough as it is, these kids changed as human beings too. They came out of their shelves, shelves, not shelves. And so I didn't really appreciate that aspect of them at all until I worked with the producer. And that I think was that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, because, because you captured that story, right? I mean, it wasn't just a score that went up. You captured the story of the actual human being. I saw them for in the work just as students. I didn't see them as kids that went home and no one could find them because they were hiding in the back of a closet. They didn't want to do their homework. They didn't want the tussle and convincing and upheaval that every family has to handle at night. You get off the bus, you're not safe at home. You're not. You have to get the stuff out of the backpack and keep going. And there's no one that can make it easy for you. And you don't get to go outside and play like your brother does. You've got any more work, right? Or your kindergarten brother that's reading quite as good as you are and taunts you with it. And then you run away from home. Never again, never again or you can't go to school because your body's completely covered with hives mm -hmm. and you're growing up and you're bullied because you're, you know, you're vulnerable to other children and your playmates make fun of you when you can't read. I mean, it's just, yeah. What you are. And it shouldn't. Yeah. So I know that learning to read is not just an academic difficulty. It's a psychological Everything. abuse. It, it pervades every aspect of your life. Everything. Yeah. And now I'm going to say something that might be out of turn. We'll get to where we started the reading league. <laughs> but um, in what we have going on right now with the pandemic and social inequities rising to the fore again, and rightfully so, <clears throat> in our world, we have so many injustices, poverty, addiction, name them all, disease, right? And we have a literacy. <laughs> but we can change that one. Yeah. That one doesn't need to exist. It really no. We can't cure all the diseases. We can't cure poverty like we want to. We can't eradicate but, but, uh, but illiteracy doesn't even need to exist. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, we have, we have control over this. Let's mm -hmm. embrace. It affects all others, like I said. It affects all the others. It's correlated with all these others too. So by by getting it together <laughs> and doing something about it, maybe you could help the other things. Who knows? Right. Mm -hmm. So out of that passion and out of that frustration comes the reading league. Yeah. So tell us tell us the origin tell us the origin story of that, um, and then we'll move on to kind of you know why the reading league has struck a deep chord. But just kind of give us a a quick. Um, you know, history of how you've gone from your beginnings to the Reading League. 
Um, I think the quickest way to bring everyone up to speed on this is to say that I was sitting at this table at that end and my husband at the other end and um, we both were very frustrated in our careers like they don't our careers people's careers don't always go so smoothly but I, I, it was really hard to check all the boxes in my career as a professor you have to go present at a conference well the people sitting in the room are usually the people in the choir i'm presenting to people who mm -hmm. get it yeah right right yeah. How's, how's that hour and a half talking to you folks going to change the system out there? It's not. Um, doing research, writing papers, publishing stuff that takes years and years to get into print. Who's going to read it? Not going to help a teacher, help a child, never. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So all of it felt for naught. And it's really hard to work hard and not have impact when you know how important it is. It really kills me. So I was done. I was done, done, done. And, and my husband said, sitting at that table, I wish he was here. He'd pop in and vouch and say it's true. But he said, why don't we um, go raise, start an alpaca farm. Right. I said, what is, I said llama. I meant alpaca. My gosh. How did that <laughs> I was wondering where llama came from. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Talk about the essential difference between those. <laughs> uh, they're, they're both camelids, but Danny and I, we do not live um, a life of farming. I, I you know, this, um, so I should have called him insane or called an ambulance because why, what are you thinking? Instead, I said, fine, sounds good. Let's just go. Let's get out of here. And so we went to, we met a realtor in Louisville, Kentucky, and we spent a few days touring farms and they just did not match, thankfully, that Joanna Gaines kind of home and garden TV farm picture. I might have built. Yeah, the, the home the homesteading idea just didn't live up to its promise. No, it looked like a lot of work. Good and, thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did interview at a, a university there, um, good people there, but because I knew I'd still have to make something for money. So we flew back um, after that, and, you know, you get your pile of bills in the mail. Uh, or junk mail envelopes going through what we missed while we were gone. And in there was a cardboard uh, package with a cardboard envelope. And I opened it and I kind of rolled my eyes because as a professor, you always get free desktop copies of new textbooks. And I'm not a textbook fan because they tend to have a lot of erroneous garbage in them. And why you have a student buy a lot expensive book if it's not going to have good stuff. Well, the book was written by David Kilpatrick, um, who I know. He lived, like Joreen lives down that road away, <laughs> and David lives up there. with me about the same far distance away. And David, I'm like, how the, scratching my head, I'm like, he's a school psychologist. What's he know about reading, right? Because that's a silo. School psychologists don't usually know the intervention part. They can tell us the kid can't read, but they can't tell us what to do about it. So what's he know? Um, and so I've met David at international conferences. Um, I know he's all about research and, and knows it like scripture and verse that he knows all of it. He is amazing. Yeah, he's a gift. Uh, truly. Uh, so David wrote this book and I said, well, out of honor to a guy I know, I'll read the first chapter. Chapter one was the beginning of the reading ring in my mind. Like this, this was my alpaca, real alpaca moment, not, not 
time. Uh, and he laid out in a number of, uh, really clearly why the research has never made its way into teachers. It wasn't enough to do research with them. There's a system out there. And what are the researchers doing to get their research into teachers' hands, practitioners? Do we know any other profession where practitioners don't wait for what the, what the new findings are? Does is an exception, and I think it's in journal articles. Anywho, uh, I called David up to congratulate him, left him a message, he called me back, and we chatted for oh long time four and a half hours i know that number on that couch over there um so i was very excited because misery loves company you know like yes i know it's so frustrating i didn't feel alone finally talking to him um so he we hang up uh we you know he probably had to go teach a class i probably had to go do something else and i said let's please let's do this some more um let's have a dinner let's let's because you want to keep going walked to about yay this far and um as excited as i had felt five steps across the room prior i felt as low right away i'm like well what would be the point of getting together you know still in that kind of what the heck's going to change anything for us to talk about it because you know who really needs to come to this talk this part two conversation is the parents of the kids i tutor you know, they have a piece to say about this. And you know who needs to come is is Heidi and Stephanie Finn. You know, like they're they're doing gangbuster stuff. They're bringing stuff that they're eating to their teachers in this district that I live in. And their teachers are doing amazing stuff. They need to be here doing it. And, and Sheila Clonin, like she left academia and started her own private practice. She was so frustrated. And then the and, and and, and and, I'm like, oh, oh because hey, one thing I got out of almost three decades of doing this work is knowing people and who get it. So I'm like, wait, we're not alone. We're not alone. We're not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. It was like a horn here's a who moment. And I still didn't have any expectations, but um, I put, I ran to Facebook and it was October 13th, 2015. I still have a screenshot of that um, post I put up and I said, hey, People, why don't we start a Central New York Reading Professional Development Club? I mean, it had some ugly acronym. It was bulky. And um, um, and please say yes, because even if you say no, I'm going to come find you and make you do it anyway. It was like a threat. And and the next morning, by mid like by, by midnight, we had a hundred people saying, "I'm in, I'm in, I'm in." So these were people that were reading specialists in schools that were sick of fighting the fight and not being heard. And, and uh, I'm like, oh, you know, if we get this megaphone thing going, we might drown out some dominant voices that need to go to go away. <laughs> and Doreen walked in that next day with Evan, I think. And I'm like, yeah, because I we're starting a reading league. Yes. And I remember I sat down, I started reading David's book and I ordered it that night on Amazon. <laughs> And here's, here's the thing with silos, though, that it's hard to disrupt because I was so charged by that book. And then yeah. it was written by a school psychologist, right? And that was like making visually what's going on clear. So, you know, I then took it to one of my schools and I offended the school psychologist 
not meaning to. I was like, could we do a book club together? And she was not excited about the fact that me, the instructional coach, wanted was like, hey, I think you should, this would be a great, because she was insulted thinking I was, that wasn't the point. The point is that this is written by somebody from your field. Wouldn't this be a good story? Because she was one who didn't believe the dyslexia existed and that kids just okay. didn't memorize. And so I thought, well, all right, that was a door closed. But it was a game-changing moment with that book, though. I think everything, he had such a way of putting anything that was in everyone's heads at different disciplines and putting it all out and saying, here, it's a, not an easy read for folks that don't typically read that kind of text, but it is like dog-eared and tabbed. I mean, I carried the same book in a bag, that bag for three years until I got a different one. To read this uh-huh. one. But yeah, I do remember Maria saying you would rather, you felt more successful rearranging fruit. Like at Wegmans, if you went to do, if you went to Wegmans, you felt like you were at a point where you felt like you could be more successful doing that just because of the troubles that we see in silos. Like you get yeah. your education in this silo, but then I leave and go to this system that might not yeah. respond to how I was educated over here. And then that breaks down. So, yeah. So, so let me, let me capitalize on something you just said, Maria, about, um, well, I'm thinking about when you got onto Facebook and you, you know, you kind of said to people, Hey, why don't we do this? And you instantly got, you know, a hundred people. So obviously that just that initial inquiry um, struck a chord with people. Why do you think the reading league has struck such a deep chord with people? Wow, uh, I've been asked questions about the start of the reading league many, many times, and that's the first time that one's come up. It's a great question. Uh, I read a book. I don't know the title of it. I don't have it handy to run and get. You know, I always have to run and get something during during a Zoom meeting, but I'll try not to today. Um, but it was about how, why some social movements are successful and where whereas others fall fall apart. Like Black Lives Matter is a social movement that's really successful and then there's there's been others I can't think of any that have kind of flopped you know um, but definitely it's got to resonate with a lot of people I think most educators feel that they were thrust into their positions having to stumble fall and fear that they weren't you know hitting the mark all the time you know it should be that way um but I think most of, or, or, or some of the members were family members who were, you know, there's a little bit of knowing, no, I'm sorry, there's a ton of knowing that this is unnecessary. And the frustration of aloneness, but finally finding others that it was like a magnetic We've had more people sit at these our original live events, so that's what we started doing. Was um, we said all we intended to do, I swear, um, was have a live event every two months. We were going to do them every month, which we realized was crazy. We were going to rent a, a bingo hall or, or go around to a school cafeteria, yeah, right, right, and just give it out for free. And uh, Joreen, you'll do one on dyslexia. I'll do one on syllable types. David will do one on this. Heidi will do one on that. And between, you know, between the 15 of us that met at a Panera (laughs) or, you know, or however many of us met or um, we all have something that we're really good at that we know really deeply. We can 
build a beautiful free PD. And then we asked all the teachers that came, what do you want to know about? And we started serving, what do you need to learn about? And it was like, they filled every box in with that. But I think that as soon as people realized that we were never, we were not, hey, you're doing something wrong. Never. We no, never. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, it's still a misconception by some districts. They think the reading league wants to point out what people are doing wrong, but we're mostly teachers. Majority of us were teachers or still are teachers. Um, and we're not professors or researchers or experts saying, this is what you don't know. We don't have anyone feel inept or insulted. We yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, Maria. And I think one word I would use is authenticity. There's an authenticity to the people that have formed the Reading League. And that's not just the leadership, but also the community of people in the league. And I always like to share with people what you shared with me about how the word league was deliberately chosen, you know? And I, and I also wanted to mention something you said that I think is really important. You, you talked about a social movement and I'm sure that was a very deliberate choice as opposed to an education movement. You know, it's really a social movement. Yeah. It really absolutely is. And there's a real, and I'm, Jorian, I'm so delighted that you were into sociology. <laughs> I yeah. Didn't know about you. It's so fun. You can learn about people you know. <laughs> um, um, there's a cool uh, YouTube video that Jorian featured. Uh, yeah. In the uh, Dyslexia Live event you did back in 20 whatever. Yeah. And called um like a, something about a nut yeah the lone nut maybe the lone nut right did you uh, see that laura it's like i don't haven't thing. seen it oh. yeah so if everyone would youtube search the for a lone nut um it's a i think it's a sociologist am i saying that right um and he has a video of some kids on a summer concert day on a hillside with grass and they're wearing, you know, semi-clothes, maybe shorts, no top, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, the music's playing and one kid gets up and just starts doing this ridiculous drunk looking dance. Um, and nobody's really, you know, he's probably being judged. So that's what I was. I was the lone dancing idiot that put out that Facebook post. But what made the movement was the people who said, I want to dance too. I want to dance too. Yeah. So yeah. saying, yeah, I'll dance with you. I'll dance. Right. Laura, you'll dance. And everyone will dance. And now, <laughs> it, so that's kind of the move, the, what we mean by a oh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what, I, yeah. I, and I, and I want to, I want to ask you, um, and let's, Jorian, I want to ask you this, um, you know, because you're, you're there in a district how far do you think we've come as an educational community, specifically in schools, since starting the Reading League, and what is getting in our way? Awesome question. I think we've come an incredibly long way in such a short time. I mean, to think of that we were just a grassroots, a few people gathering at Panera in 2016, to now sitting in on conferences, to being a national trainer of a literacy organization for letters, <laughs> referencing the reading league throughout which was fascinating and advocating for how much of a group how how people should really subscribe to us 
I'd say we've made some really big dents really fast. Uh, I also think that teachers feel safer now and more comfortable to say, you know what, I really don't know this stuff and I kind of want to know more. And once we give them a taste of like, hey, did you know this is what the brain does or any of those things, they're hooked. And once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? And you can't, you almost can't, how could I go about my day the same way that I've always done it now that I have this new information? And I think that that, that really feeds all of us because we're like, this is where I felt like I felt, you know, I needed this information and it's not a mystery. There is, you know, it's kind of clear and I, I can do these things and my kids are responding and I'm having fun. Yeah. Like the, the, the curtain has parted, right? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's not some big magical thing really. And it's not a natural thing either. And you know, all of these misunderstandings due to what we had at the time in terms of knowledge. And that's just a contagious piece. Right. And I think our enthusiasm, well, and it's contagious anyway. And like you had said, one of the things that I most respect about our group is the fact that we're incredibly authentic. And, you know, I, I find that I even, I think back to when I first met Maria, like, okay, she's a professor, like she has all these accolades or whatever, but it's like, she's down to, like, it just was my first brush with somebody who has all of this access to knowledge and didn't put me in my place or didn't feel like she had to be like, Oh, this girl, you know, just, I think a lot of folks feel intimidated with knowledge. You know, it's a power and knowledge is powerful. And once I have more knowledge, I'm feeling a little more confident and powerful and that, you know, there is no shame in not knowing the shame is not, is not doing something as a result of knowing kind of thing. So as we continue to grow, I think that's just going to happen over time. The problem is, is that, you know, we, a lot of the, this work has really been to strengthen the core of the teacher, which is incredibly, I mean, that is the most precious part within our, with our children in the organizational system. But from education, there are all of these other spokes, right? We have policy, we have the schools of education, we have psychology, we have leadership, we have parents, we have my, all of these other things. That can be, it's kind of overwhelming to think that we've got to, we've got to um, tap into all of that too, I think, to really infiltrate. Don't you think? I think that to me is, the, that's the most challenging thing. I think for teachers, we're really, we're supporting them as best we can. But if I'm a teacher who's getting the support and I'm in a system that wants me to drive a car on water when we know <laughs> that that's not working, you know, it's we've got to kind of support that as well and not shame. You know, we've got to bring this knowledge. But just going back to that example that I gave a while ago as to me and my silo saying to somebody in another silo, hey, we should cross paths and do these things. And then they're offended. I mean, we've got to continue to disrupt that and break that because we're all here for kids and we're all educators at the end of the day. Right. So. That to me is the driver, but it's also in yeah. our way as well. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think you brought up a really important point that, you know, we're all stakeholders, right? Like you could take that child in the center and you can draw this wheel. It's all of us. It's, I mean, everyone in society has a stake in that child being a literate citizen, you know, that child leading a literate life. You know, we all have a stake in that. And I, 
I think that's, again, why I go back to what you said, Maria, about a, this is social movement, right? It's not just in the educational community. This is really about all of us because we're all stakeholders in that child's success, right? And I think, Laura, that the people who were magnet, magnet drawn to this are those that had some experiences in realizing, knowing that it works, <laughs> that the science is a pipe dream, not a clause or phrase for another thing that won't do anything. I was thinking as you guys were talking about each person who joined and I'm like, yep, she was a reading session. She cranked out reading. Um, so they were all doing the science of reading a lot of stuff, feeding the brain what it needs to succeed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I do. So Maria, let me ask you this. Um, when we think about the science of reading, what do you think people get wrong about that? Or what are, what are some perceptions that get in the way? Well, I hope this, I, like the science of reading was a phrase we could not say 10 years ago. I don't know about you ladies. I mean, I know it was something you had to kind of squelch and not say because it seemed offensive. Well, we've come a long way, baby. Now the science of reading is out on the center stage. But it's... Now the burden, we thought the burden was getting people to know that it existed. Mm. The, the burden now is heavier. The burden now is to protect it and make sure that everybody in the world that produces something or invents something or publishes rather a program or a strategy or whatever doesn't slap a sticker on it and call it the science of reading. Yeah, let, let me pause there. I want to, re I want to reiterate that. Yeah, our first challenge was to understand it. Now our challenge is to protect it. To understand that it exists. Yeah, I love that. Love that. And now I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Props to Emily Hanford because... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> in one little... You know, it was hard work for her. I'm sure it's a long time coming. But, you know, what she did was really propel that work for us. And so it's... That's checked. You know, we have now got the science of reading in a place where people at least are hearing about it, realizing it ain't going to go away, realizing I should learn. Great. But now we have, we're in a whole new situation. People are picking a little bit of this, uh, you know, putting it on there <laughs> and saying, look, I'm doing it. Well, you're not. Like, yeah, I, uh, awesome. That's really, that's really important because I do think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think a lot of people, for example, think about the science of reading as, well, that's phonics. So, you know, I'm doing, well, I'm doing phonics. Therefore, I am doing the science of reading. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can understand why people think that because phonics is, a, is an integral part of the science of reading. Right. But it's not the whole thing. And that's what a lot of people weren't doing. Yeah, very, very much or very well. So, yeah, uh, yeah there's the science of reading is uh, all, it's about every aspect of reading. Yeah, there's for sure. Yeah. Um, so. I like it because the science of reading is about every aspect of reading. And I also like the science of reading is for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to make sure we have time to talk about the future plans and aspirations that you both have for the reading league in terms of the future. So um, as leaders of this organization, what are your thoughts? Jereen, let's start with you. 
Well, one of the things I, I like to think about our organization that helps us stand apart as opposed to something else is that we're trying to bridge through all of those silos within education and society as a whole, right? So how do we do that and how do we sustain and grow as an organization to, you know, give credence to different disciplines and, and kind of shining that light that they we're all contributing to helping kids become literate, period. And so how do we do that? And I find, like, to me, I like to disrupt different silos and being a parent um, that wasn't, well, is an educator. I was an insider outsider in my own district as I tried to advocate, which was, you know, forcing something on, and it wasn't forcing, but it felt like probably for them, something that they didn't have the knowledge to hold on to with this information with dyslexia. So how do we dispel this? So, because it's not a mystery. I mean, this information is clear and it will help so many children. And what we know about how the brain learns to read and what the brain needs in order to be a proficient reader can be done as a preventative measure, right? If we know these things, you know, if we go bigger, then I'd like to see policy change to support that on the grand scale, because if we can catch the Evans of the world, you know, right on the onset and just, you know, prevent some of these things that, you know, have been life altering as a result of this difficulty with reading, might we then be better off as a society, right? So I feel like, how can I infiltrate different pockets across the whole educational system? And I like to be, I think the Reading League is certainly primed and we have the folks together already. We already come from different disciplines. How do we continue to grow this so that everybody knows about us, not just our, you know, schools and school systems? Yeah, great. So Maria, I know this is, um, this has been, you know, your dream. So what's, what's the next, what's the next chapter of your dream in terms of the future? Well, I think um, we could frame the future of the Reading League with that wheel that Joreen alluded to. So um, there, we just, the Reading League has those calls to action on its website where we call on policymakers, frame policy around the science of reading. We call on publishers to discontinue publishing stuff that's not, we call on and to, and to lean on science of reading knowledgeable experts when they revise their material. Um, uh, we call on schools of education. Um, and a lot of those are coming along and coming on board, which is encouraging. And so um, we as a reading league um, have um, members and supporters, like the reading league is in central New York, we're in Syracuse, but that doesn't mean that's we are just a reading league. Reading leagues across the world now. Um, it's anybody. <laughs> uh, that's what the word league means. So there are all these wheelhouses that and spokes rather that um, need um, strengthening attention and support. So that's that's our work. We have a lot of work to do still. Yeah. I know sometimes we, I know sometimes you and I have said that to each other, Maria, it's like, there's work to be done. There's work to be done. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do want to point out to anybody who's listening that um, you're speaking about our Science of Reading campaign and yeah. those calls to action for different stakeholders. Um, so what I've heard you say, in terms of future, I've heard you say, you know, try to kind of bridge through those silos 
And I like that. I like the way you phrase that, Jareen, and not break through the silos, but bridge through the silos. Um, I've heard you say, Maria, in, in reaching everyone, you know, bridge through the silos to reach everyone. I heard you say really support that message of prevention versus intervention um, and uh, to think about how do we move that to policy change, right? How do we actually change policy? And I would add to that just as, as someone as part of this organization is, you know, I hope that we always continue to grow and learn and use that to lead, right? Our grow, growing and learning. So it's exciting. There's work to be done, but it's really exciting work and it's such important work. And I mean, aren't we all, I just think about this every day, aren't we all fortunate to be part of this? Aren't we? We're fortunate we get to jump out of bed in the morning and be part of this. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay, so I want to end with our little, you know, kind of quick fire questions. And I'll ask you, I'll alternate. So we'll start with uh, you, Jareen. Who was your favorite teacher growing up and why? Oh, golly. I don't remember the name, but it was my sociology professor. Okay. My, I was so I don't I remember the name. you would mention yeah, that person. Yeah, I can't. I was just thinking about it, and I have a mental block, but it was my sociology professor. Well, once it, once it comes back to you, you'll have to write him a note or hit her a note. Her. Yes. Yes. Maria, who was your favorite teacher growing up and why? Uh, too many to mention, but I'm going to just throw out yeah, there. Pick one. Carol Ball, fourth grade, I think. Mm. She did read alouds. It blew me away. Oh, see? Look at how much, look at how much we're always, we're impacted by teachers. Teachers can change. In your case, Doreen, change the trajectory of your life, really. Yeah. 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 Don't touch with her. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, next question. What was your favorite book, either as a child or as an adult, Doreen? <sighs> Too many to choose from. Um, pick one. I, I go back to, to Kill a Mockingbird. Oh. I just oh. think at that time in my life when I was younger and I read the book that it just affected me so much. And I had read about somebody else's perspective that experiences that were unlike my own, that it kind of you know, resonated that you know, there's a lot more out there in this world. And isn't that the, the beauty of a literate life? You know? Exactly, right. Maria, how about you? Oh, I'm being a, a bit of a panic. Ah, 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 too many things. <laughs> how about just name one? Oh, goodness. Oh, you know, the, the, the I, I loved, my sister was much older than me, 15 years older than me, and she would always gift me with a real book, like with a gold leaf. Oh, so Secret Garden, Little Women, like, so these were my, I didn't have a lot of things or a lot of books, but uh, my favorite children's books, everyone knows, I did it as a read aloud during the, when the pandemic started with Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Uh, oh, yeah. I love that. That is one, oh my gosh, that is one of my favorite books of all time. And Sylvester Duncan. I know. Um, what are you reading right now, Tareen? Oh my liver, you had to ask me that. Well, I read a variety of things. I'm reading a book by Tanahasi Coates. I don't know if I said his name correctly. No, that's it. Yeah, it is. Um, the Letter to His Son. I can't think of the name of the title. Um, I'm reading um, Making It Stick. Oh, isn't that good? That's yes, so The Science yes. of Learning. That's so good. Um, I'm reading the second book by, oh, now I'm nervous. Maybe I'm the one who has word retrieval issues here on my <laughs> But I mean, I have like four or five different books going at this time. And so those are the two that are sticking That's out. That's cool. Right yeah, I'm the same way. I have a stack of books. And if you ask They're me, all over the place. Remember all the time. So the plant-based plant paradox or something like oh, that. The acid watchers die. I mean, I have a variety of. Yeah, yeah. 
Cool. How about you, Maria? Oh, yes. Oh, there you yes. go. That's okay, good. good. Very good. Yeah, good. Um, okay, um, Doreen, what do you have on your desk that symbolizes you or is dear to you? On my desk? Um, pictures of my children, actually. I have one here. This oh, is the boys. And they're little, 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 little. That's one of my favorites because they look like they really appreciate each other. So I like to cherish those because in real life, that's not always the case. So I'd say family and the desk that I have upstairs, this is my downstairs area, is um, is an, I guess it's an heirloom desk. It was my husband's great grandmother's desk. So I think that's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Maria? Well, this is my home desk table, and um, one of the people I recognize these things behind me. Um, these are historical documents that are housed in, I believe, the Vatican Library. That um, you know, so they're Napoleon's letter to the Pope saying, "I take over." This is uh, King Henry VIII's request for a divorce with all the seals from Parliament, and, and um, this is a, a Chinese empress begging for rescue. And, so um, I told you I started out as a history teacher. All things have to do with writing and literacy. Oh, that's so neat. That's really cool. Very cool. Um, and last question for both of you. What are your greatest hopes for today's children? Doreen? Well, given our current situation is that they have developed some sort of resiliency and ability to reconnect. I worry about connections. Um, and just literacy rates in general. But I hope that um, this will send out, our kids will be more somehow more creative due to having to not have access to things they're typically able to, you know, when you're left with just your mind sometimes and in isolation, as maddening as that can be, maybe for some, this might ignite a spark, you know, and just to hold on to connections. I really hope that we can support and sustain. Nice. Maria, what are your greatest hopes for today's children? Well, I'm going to answer based on a conference I was at right before COVID hit where I think it was in San Diego. It was um, Excel and Ed foundation keynote speaker. And he was speaking uh, about technology's impact on, uh, and creating anxiety and disconnection. So I hope, very much hope, that um, our work in helping kids learn to read can provide that connection to humanity, empathy, um, and whatnot, because we know that being able to read is a protective factor when you experience adverse life effects and loneliness and trauma and all that. So. Uh, I hope connection and human humanness and empathy through literacy. Awesome. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. And thank you both so much. And I know that as people are listening to this, um, they'll understand why I feel fortunate every day that I get to work with the both of you. Um, it's just my privilege. And I know that um, all of us who are connected through the Reading League and community just so appreciate what both of you do as leaders in this organization. So mwah, mwah, mwah. thank you thank for, you. for being Laura, Laura. Absolutely. I second that. Here, here. Bye. Bye guys. Bye.
Thank you for listening today for that heartfelt and somewhat emotional exploration with uh, Jorine and Maria. Uh, the Reading League is committed to bringing you important conversations like this, as well as bringing you resources that can help you on your journey and in your practice. So if you haven't had a chance to check us out, please do. Uh, please join our Facebook community where you'll share your journey and learn from other colleagues. Uh, please check us out at www.thereadingleague.org. Um, and join, a join us, become a member. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.